Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, you guys. We left off in the last episode about some things that were either not helpful for OCD treatment and also some things that could be kind of detrimental to OCD treatment. So if you are landing on this episode first, you're going to want to make sure that you probably pause this, go back and listen to episode 86, part one, going to lay a lot better of a foundation for what doesn't work for OCD treatment as far as interventions go, as therapy goes. So we left off specifically talking about the difference between EMDR and ERP, um, why life coaching kind of lacks that peer-reviewed effectiveness, and also we talked a little bit about relaxation therapies insofar as its treatment for OCD symptoms. And so today we're going to go over other questionable interventions for OCD, some things that aren't necessarily treatments, um, but that could be like woven into different therapeutic um, modalities that I think could be harmful or not helpful for OCD. We're going to talk about benzodiazepines, uh, which are those kind of as-needed anti-anxiety medications um, and why those are not necessarily helpful for OCD and could actually make things worse. And I'm just going to talk about some other mistakes that therapists can make, um, some common pitfalls in exposure and response prevention for OCD, and some other things too. So to get started with some other questionable interventions for OCD, replacing good thoughts with bad thoughts. So This is really common, Um, unfortunately, with kind of general therapists, um, people who kind of are jack-of-all-trades type of therapists and um, who don't really specialize necessarily, and especially not in OCD treatment, um, I hear it too often for other therapists or or from my members at NoCD, they're coming from therapists who told them to essentially replace good thoughts with bad thoughts or vice versa. Yeah. So replacing bad thoughts with good thoughts, right? So, um, you know, if you are thinking of all the terrible things that could happen, you know, just think about all the good things that could happen too. Um, If you are thinking about, you know, harming your child, why not think about, you know, hugging him instead? And unfortunately, that's just no different um, from from neutralizing, right? And we know that that's a really common um, OCD ritual and OCD compulsion. So, With ERP, we want you guys to actually welcome all of those bad thoughts, quote unquote, bad thoughts. We want you to kind of welcome all the thoughts. We want you to lean into that discomfort. We want you to welcome all of that um, and kind of, if anything, egg it on, right? So 
egg it on. Um, Dr. Reed Wilson kind of says like, you know, give me two servings and give it to me now. So we definitely do not want to replace bad thoughts with good thoughts. Um, it kind of gives the message to the brain that it's not okay to have these thoughts. You can't tolerate them. Something bad is going to happen if you continue to have these thoughts. Um, and we want to, with ERP, we want to provide you a different experience. Um, it's also not super helpful to help someone with OCD try to understand why they are the way that they are or why their OCD is coming um, in the form or forms that it does. And this is really tempting, I think, for someone with OCD to do, right? We um, individuals with OCD, they tend to want a conclusion. They tend to want to know answers to their questions. Um, and, you know, of course, it kind of brings us some conclusive uh, feelings when we kind of know why or have an explanation as to why things are the way that they are, including um, and especially when it comes to our mental health. So it's really, really tempting for people to try to understand, you know, why I have OCD and what contributed to this and why is my, um, why are my obsessions and compulsions all about my son or why are my obsessions and compulsions all about this? And to try to go in this deep dive of all of their childhood issues and, you know, it is just a really deep and nasty and totally not helpful rabbit hole to go down. So uh, I think if it doesn't detract from the point of therapy, which is how do we handle this now? What are we doing now, right? And as long as it's not avoidance of the now and, and kind of what we're going to do now about it, I think it's okay to maybe for a little bit entertain that. Um, but again, like I, I would wonder what's the function of that, right? Like what's the function of wanting to know why? What's the function of understanding that? Um, I think it's one thing to kind of like have some basic emotional processing and allow someone to have that, um, you know, validation that this isn't your fault, you know, we, but at the end of the day, we're never going to know. We're never going to know 100% where this came from. Um, I wish that we could give people that experience where everything makes sense and this reasonable explanation and this, um, magnificent kind of storyline is all packaged up in a nice little red bow and everything makes sense now. But I just, I don't know if, if people really can ever have that experience. I think they can in a, in a different way than, you know, delving into their childhood, so on and so forth. Um, so I guess my point is, let's just be really careful about what the function is behind trying to understand why. And let's be sure it doesn't detract from the exposures and the response prevention piece. Let's also make sure um, that the person understands that we're never going to know 100%. So, um, you know, it's one thing to maybe entertain that a little bit, but we cannot make that the, the bulk of our treatment. And it certainly is not going to be um, our focus in treatment. Um, and related to that is just too much emphasis on upbringing and childhood and history in general. So again, I think that this is really tempting for someone who has OCD to do, right? So, you know, it's tempting to want to know where the OCD came from, but it's also really important for the person to understand, you know, nothing causes OCD. So um, I see some like weird social media posts out there and some strange claims out there from time to time that, um, you know, trauma causes OCD or this causes OCD. We don't know enough about what contributes. I take that back. We don't know enough about anything that causes OCD, right? So to our knowledge, 
It's a lot of different things. It's a combination of a lot of different factors, including but not limited to genetic predispositions. Um, so there's definitely a biological component there. Um, that is to say that if you if you do have this running in your family, it, it doesn't mean that you are 100% definitely going to exhibit those traits because we also know that environment and modeling can play a huge role. Um, you can have certain you know, various risk factors that increase your likelihood to kind of have that turn on as far as something that ex that is expressed. Um, you can also have a variety of protective factors that kind of protect you and shield you from, um, you know, developing that. So it's important to note that nothing causes OCD. If you have OCD or someone you love has OCD, it was because of a, of a wide range of different uh, variables that all contributed to this occurring. Um, so there are contributions, but nothing that causes it. And this is really, uh, this is totally different from discussing core fears. So a lot of times people get confused like, well, Jenna, you say that it's really good to discuss core fears. How is that any different from what it is that you're talking about now? So it's really important to discuss core fears when it comes to OCD treatment. And it's important because we have to understand, this is totally a different topic for another podcast episode, but we have to understand that OCD is not actually about the subtypes superficially that it presents to us. So it's not actually about contamination. It's not actually about you know, fears of being a pedophile, it's not about those superficial things and kind of how they superficially present themselves. Um, it's about obsessive doubt. It's about, uh, it's the doubt disorder, right? So I think there are some core fears that kind of can bundle a lot of those um, superficial difficulties together. Um, some core fears might be, you know, fear of being uncomfortable forever, um, fear of making a catastrophic, like, ear you know, not fixable mistake. Um, they're deep and they're heavy and they're, you know, that's what's underlying a lot of these difficulties when it comes to OCD. And it's important to work with a therapist to identify what your core fears are, whether that's fear of making a mistake, fear of being in eternal misery, fear of being um, ostracized from society, you can work with your therapist to do what we call the downward arrow technique, where they essentially will ask you a couple of questions and nudge you in certain areas in a really therapeutic way to identify what one or more of your core fears might be. And, you know, we want to do this with you in treatment because those are the exposures that are super, super beneficial, you know, exposures that really have to do with getting you to embrace and welcome in those core fears and address those core fears head on. Um, perfect example that I'm, I'm thinking of is someone that I worked with, um, <clears throat> you know, they're, you know, had a lot of harm thoughts, a lot of sexual intrusive thoughts, um, a lot of thoughts about, you know, very ego dystonic thoughts of, you know, maybe they were a pedophile. Um, and we did the downward arrow technique to get technique together. And, you know, there's a lot of core fears that could be there, right? Like fear of going to jail and being miserable forever and uncomfortable forever. Um, but for her, for this person, it was a fear of kind of being ostracized from her family and, you know, being alone and, you know, being all by herself and, and having to carry that grief and that misery and that regret all by herself and just being bad. Um, and so come to find out, we didn't actually need to do such superficial exposures. Of course, we did. You know, we used those superficial exposures kind of as like a door, a foot in the door 
to get us to the core fears, but it's important to do exposure work around those core fears too, around being alone, around fears that you are bad, around fears that you could be ostracized from your, from society or from family. And, um, those are really, really meaningful exposures. So I say that to say, identifying and discussing core fears with your therapist, this is not what I'm talking about when it comes to, uh, when I say putting too much emphasis on upbringing, childhood, and history. Putting too much emphasis on upbringing, childhood, and history is not helpful for treatment because it can detract you um, from the point, which is exposure and response prevention, whereas discussing core fears is actually forward thinking. It actually helps you kind of peel back those layers of the onion, um, and you use that as a way to develop some really good and effective exposure um, techniques. Some other techniques or interventions um, that I think are really questionable for OCD, um, ice packs. So this is a tip skill from dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, using ice packs when you're really, really, really um, experiencing intense emotions. Um, this brings me back to when I was working in residential um, and Dr. Riemann, he saw someone kind of walking around the unit the OCD and anxiety residential recovery unit in Wisconsin, um, he saw someone walking around with an ice pack on their arm. Um, and he called like an all halt meeting, um, basically to make sure that this person was using the ice pack for like a physical ailment, like for um, like a bee sting or something like that. And, and to make sure that they were not using it as a way to bring down anxiety. Right. So we do not want to use ice packs um, as a way to bring down anxiety. We do not want to um, we do not want to uh, use anything. Right. We don't want to use uh, breathing. We don't want to use music. We don't want to use anything, including ice packs, for sure, to bring down really, really high anxiety as it relates to an obsession and, you know, not giving into a compulsion or giving into too many compulsions. Um, and the reason why is because. Ice packs can be used to bring down other intense emotions in DBT, but it's not portable. It's not portable and it goes against exposure and response prevention. So I would be worried that if someone learned to use an ice pack during an exposure to bring down their anxiety, it would one, interrupt the habituation process because that should be a natural process with nothing other than the passing of time taking place. Um, the ice pack directly intervenes with that. And further, from the inhibitory learning standpoint, we want that person to learn, you know, that they were able to handle it. If you introduce an ice pack, I think it also violates the inhibitory learning model because you aren't learning that you can tolerate it. You're learning that with an ice pack, you can tolerate it. And so that's also not portable and that's not what we want people to learn. Um, so again, some DBT skills may complement exposure and response prevention. I'm actually a really big fan of dialectical behavioral therapy, um, and I often will educate my members about DBT skills um, because some of them may, like I said, they may complement ERP really, really nicely. For instance, there's a skill called opposite action where essentially if you have the urge um, out of intense anger or otherwise intense emotion to scream and slam your door, DBT skill, um, 
you know, of opposite action would say to, you know, really quietly close the door and whisper. Um, I think that's great for exposure and response prevention, right? Opposite action is kind of all that ERP is about. You know, if you want to avoid something, we have you approach it. If you want to do a compulsion, we want you to not do that compulsion. Um, but this ice pack skill is not what we would encourage for ERP anyway. Um, law of attraction concepts can also be really difficult for people um, who have OCD. And so it's really difficult for individuals, especially when they have magical thinking or existential themes to hear concepts related to the law of attraction or energy or think it and believe it, so on and so forth. So um, therapists in general, even if they're not meaning to apply these law of attraction concepts in session, they may, you know, inadvertently say things or suggest things like trust your gut or trust your intuition. Um, and that can be really triggering and, and not helpful for someone who has OCD because that's the whole point. They cannot trust their gut. They cannot trust their intuition. Trust isn't enough for OCD. OCD wants 100% certainty. And so trust is a really difficult concept for people who have OCD. And obviously our hope and our goal is to get them there, but we can't get them there just by saying that. They need to have the experience of building that trust um, through very you know, structured and repetitive exposure work. Um, because that OCD doubt is always going to creep in. If you or anyone you know is struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder or related conditions like skin picking, hair pulling, hoarding, tick disorders, or other body-focused repetitive behaviors, check out NoCD. NoCD is an online teletherapy platform offering specialized services, and evidence-based treatments for obsessive compulsive disorder and related difficulties. You can meet with a therapist who specializes in your unique concerns and also get between sessions support through messaging. We take insurance and also offer payment plans for those who self-pay. Available now in and out of the United States, check us out at www.nocd.com to get started. You can also download our free mobile app, which includes free therapy tools, an in-app community, and so much more. Know you are not alone and go to www.nocd.com or download the Treat My OCD app on your phone to see how so many others are overcoming their OCD. You've got this. And then one other questionable intervention before we move on to benzodiazepines is focusing too much on content. So as I've kind of already suggested in this episode, right, it's not necessarily about germs or children or blood. Um, and I want to be very clear here. You know, I don't want to overgeneralize and say that content doesn't matter. Content doesn't matter. Because um, I one angle of what I'm trying to say is that, yes, content does not matter when it comes to treatment. When it comes to treatment, we apply exposure and response prevention the same way. Obviously, we tailor it. It's a slightly different recipe, but it's always going to come back to exposure and response prevention, regardless of what the content is. Um, and it's also, you know, I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are certain individuals out there with certain themes or with certain subtypes, especially um, more sexual, you know, themes or taboo themes that have to deal with more um, shame and stigma that say other subtypes don't have to deal with. And so I want you all to know, you know, if you're out there struggling with those taboo themes, if you're out there struggling with a, with a theme or with um, 
some difficulties that have that stigma attached to it. I do think that there's something special and and that that those individuals need a little bit of extra kind of love, I guess, um, just a little bit more compassion when it comes to that, because they obviously feel alone. Their content is taboo. There's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that. But with that said, when we focus too much on the content, when we wrestle with the content, when we indulge in the content, we are letting the OCD win. So it's really good to lean into the generic sense of uncertainty that's all around us. And so, you know, that underlying, that generic sense of uncertainty, um, that life is kind of unpredictable and there's a lot of things that we don't have control over. And, you know, I can do my best, but at the end of the day, we're all rolling the dice and that these bad things can happen to anybody. And no matter what I do, I can't be 100% safe. That's the uncertainty, the generic sense of uncertainty that I want people to accept and to welcome in. So it's not necessarily maybe I will get sick, maybe I won't. It's, you know, maybe unfortunate things will happen. (laughs) Maybe I don't have as much uh, control over things as I thought that I do. Um, So I think when we do that, when we sit with the generic sense of uncertainty and the generic doubt, Um, I think it reduces the bouncing that OCD can do when it kind of bounces from theme to theme or subtype to subtype. It's kind of like that whack-a-mole situation. Um, when we do that, when we focus too much on content, you know, focus too much on the fear of germs, focus too much on the fear of blood, we're forgetting the underlying sense of uncertainty that bad things could happen all the time. There is a lot of things in life that are uncertain. In fact, everything in life is uncertain. There's nothing in life that is certain. So I want people to be sure that they're sitting with that. Um, Moving on to benzodiazepines. So these are not helpful for OCD treatment in particular. So um, again, I'm sure there will be someone out there who says, well, they're helpful for me and I need them to get through and whatever. That's fine. Like at the end of the day, just like nothing is 100% certain, nothing that that I say is going to match every single person 100% of the time. So I think there are always exceptions. People are complicated. Mental health is certainly complicated. So yes, I could probably imagine a scenario that that what I'm saying has some exceptions. Go, That's totally fine. But for the most part, the average person, by and large, this is what I'm saying. So when it comes to benzodiazepines, again, these are those as-needed medications. These are not like SSRIs that you take every day for anxiety or depression or OCD. You take them every single day, ideally at the same time. They're prescribed by your doctor. You take them regardless of how you feel. Um, Benzodiazepines are kind of those as-needed, like Xanax. Um, They're not helpful for OCD because they don't actually reduce the obsessions or the compulsions. Um, They kind of act as as a Band-Aid or a ritual to kind of subdue the anxiety experience. So it's especially problematic when you take them like before exposures. Um, I've worked with tons of people who would come to treatment and they're taking a benzo um, like right before they come to therapy. And it's like, I have to do a a therapy with you that requires me literally to make you anxious. And you just took an anti-anxiety medication. Like what is possibly, what could possibly come of this? Um, We want you all to know as, as people who have OCD 
through the exposure process, we want you to know that you can tolerate distress and that it can pass naturally. So by taking a benzodiazepine, you're reinforcing this concept that you can't tolerate distress and that it cannot pass naturally. So it just completely interferes with the ability for ERP to work. Um, because like I mentioned, benzos reduce anxiety. And we want to evoke anxiety through the exposure and response prevention process. Research shows that it also interferes with memory formation in the brain. Um, and this obviously contributes to a lot of difficulties, right? So um, it contributes to, um, you know, an interruption of the new corrective learning processes and habituation. So a lot of exposure work is super beneficial and super effective because you're actually learning new information. You're learning as you resist washing your hands, you start out to be really anxious, but eventually it's not as anxiety provoking. That's a new corrective learning experience. When you take a benzodiazepine and it interferes with memory formation and makes that process of your brain more difficult to happen, it's really difficult, if not kind of impossible, for your brain to collect that new information and form it as a memory. And so the inhibitory learning process is affected. Habituation can be affected. And essentially, it's just not going to be as effective of treatment. So as far as if you're taking benzodiazepines while you're doing exposure and response prevention, make sure that you're not taking them before or after exposures, especially immediately before and immediately after the sooner that you take them in association with your exposures, the the more difficulty you're creating for yourself down the line and you're essentially negating your work. Um, so as always, make sure that you're talking to your physician about this. Make sure you're talking to your doctor about it um, because medications are not something to mess with by yourself. You want to make sure that you're talking to your therapist about it, uh, talking to your psychiatrist, all that good stuff. Uh, but for the most part, I would encourage people to try to wean themselves off of this in a really uh, strategic and well-monitored you know, monitored way with their doctor and ideally try to stay away from it if they can. There are some other mistakes that therapists make, um, and we'll kind of kind of wrap it up here. We, we will have a third part to this episode because we have so many more items to kind of get through. There are lots of mistakes that therapists can make. Um, and this is where my heart breaks a little bit whenever someone says that, oh, exposure and response prevention didn't work for me, or it made things worse, or, you know, I tried this and, you know, it didn't work, so on and so forth. And I want to be very clear, exposure and response prevention is the gold standard, but it's not the only treatment that's out there. Um, and it's not perfect. It's not perfect at all. Um, there are definitely some people, I feel like I've thrown every, you know, trick that I have at them and, you know, I cannot imagine anything else helping them. Like, I, I don't know what else could have helped them. Um, so I do believe that there are some individuals out there who it doesn't work for and that's okay. Um, but for the most part, again, I think I, I wonder when it doesn't work for people, are therapists making certain mistakes that are totally fixable, totally addressable. Um, so just be on the lookout for these mistakes as, as therapists, if you're listening, um, definitely try to make sure that we're working around these mistakes. And, you know, if, if you're listening and, and this is something that your therapist is guilty of, I encourage you guys to have the conversation, um, you know, collaborate more with your therapist. ERP is supposed to be a collaborative process um, and you have a say in how things go. It's your treatment plan. So uh, I think it's really 
difficult when, when therapists have the wrong demeanor during exposure work. Um, it's especially difficult if the therapist is nervous and scared and kind of timid, especially during the first, someone's first exposure, right? So, you know, if you're asking this person to do this really scary thing, but you're also scared and nervous and that, uh, it's observable, it's going to be really hard for that person to trust the process, right? So modeling is super important here. You do, I think, as a therapist have to, you know, you don't have to be stoic and a soldier about it, but you do have to model, you know, that you can be firm and also validating. You want to kind of exude that calm, cool, and confident nature. Um, I'm open with my members all the time. Like, yeah, this makes me anxious and I'm going to do it because I know that this is what's good for me. Um, so it's definitely possible to have both. I think, like I'm saying, you don't have to be like emotionless about it. You can definitely uh, be open about if you are feeling nervous about something, but but still make sure that you are firm in your stance and, and modeling what you would want them to do. Um, it's also really important and I don't think some therapists do this enough, it's really important to make sure that you encourage lifestyle exposures. So this means the person with OCD can't just do exposures in session. The person also has to do exposures in real life. They have to make it a lifestyle. So you can't just do, you know, look at these pictures or read these scripts during your therapy sessions with your therapist. You also have to go and take that work and apply it to your everyday life? How are you going to take these skills and apply it to your job, to your family, to when you're brushing your teeth? Like, how are you going to make approaching anxiety your full-time job? That's really important. It's also really important as therapists to kind of fade out and you want to release or surrender the reins of the treatment over to your person, over to the person who has OCD. So as they gain mastery over their treatment, as they start to become more educated about the process and, you know, more independent with the process, something that I think is really, really powerful is to gradually, as the therapist, give that person more agency, to give them some more control over what exposures are you ready to cross off? You know, um, what? Ex how many times would you like to work on that exposure this weekend? Um, allowing them to create their own goals. So much of being an OCD therapist is essentially working ourselves out of a job. <laughs> I want my members, my clients to be able to do my job. I want them to be able to have the inner workings professionally about OCD that I have. I want them to be able to identify triggers, identify rituals, identify potentially good exposures. I want them to be thinking like an OCD therapist. Um, and in order to test that out, we need them to release the reins. You know, we need to release the reins to them. We need to give them more agency and more control. Um, it got to the point sometimes where I would have my my clients at, at residential, I would have them pick their own exposures and, and pretty much I was here in case they needed anything, especially that last week before they discharged. It was like, you good? You come to me if you need anything. But, you know, I, I'm here if you need me, but I want you to try to be as independent as possible. And I think it's really important to, to make sure that you guys are adequately reviewing relapse prevention and kind of what's going to happen in the future. So for instance, it's really important to talk about how to handle lapses before they turn into relapses, um, having a realistic expectation for um, what recovery looks like, um, 
you know, talking about what it looks like when you're in the red, when you're really, really struggling, when you're in the yellow, when you're kind of struggling and when things are starting to get really difficult and when you're in the green, um, identifying support people, identifying, you know, how to get back into therapy if and when you need it. Those things are all really important. You do not want to not have those conversations before you, you know, break off from those sessions. So we still have so much to go over. Uh, we have more mistakes that therapists make. We have common pitfalls in ERP, uh, some harmful responses that you could uh, engage the OCD with. So um, we're going to have to come back for part three. So come back for part three. We have so much more to go over. Um, thanks for sticking with me, you guys. In the meanwhile, I hope you keep doing all of the hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.